Hi, everybody. Welcome to Ask Dr. Jessica, the podcast for my goal to give quality information to help anyone out there who cares for children. I'm your host and pediatrician, Dr. Jessica Hockman. Today's guest is a neurologist, Dr. Jeff Gelfand, and we are going to talk about multiple sclerosis, also referred to as MS. I think it is important to bring awareness to MS because, as Dr. Gelfand points out, while MS is uncommon, it is common enough that most everybody knows somebody who has MS. I hope you enjoy this conversation where we talk about the most common questions about MS, and Dr. Gelfand also sheds an optimistic perspective about current treatment options and potential treatments on the horizon. To tell you a bit about Dr. Gelfand, he is a brilliant neurologist and he has a reputation for treating the most complicated neurologic conditions. Dr. Gelfand graduated from Princeton University, he attended Harvard Medical School, and he currently works in the neurology department at UC San Francisco. And as a reminder, beginning on Tuesday, March 7th, I will be offering four one-hour online workshops to help parents worry less about their toddlers. I'll be covering a range of topics, all with the goal to help parenting be more enjoyable and hopefully less stressful. If you are interested in hearing more details and reserving a spot, follow me on Instagram at AskDrJessica or send an email to AskDrJessicaMD at gmail.com. And lastly, thank you to anyone who has left a five-star review for Ask Dr. Jessica. I read all of the comments and I appreciate them immensely. Now on to the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Gelfand. I'm so excited to have you here. Well, thanks so much for having me. I know you're a busy man. You see a lot of patients. You take care of really complicated cases and I'm so appreciative of your time. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. So tell everybody, what is your title? What kind of work do you do? So I'm a neurologist and that's a a doctor who specializes in the care of people with diseases of the nervous system. And, and that includes the brain, the spinal cord, um, parts of the eye and our nerves. And so it's really much of what's, what makes us who we are. And what kind of patients do you treat? What's a typical patient referral that you will get? And, and so my particular focus is I mean, helping people with neuroinflammatory conditions and, and autoimmune neurologic diseases. And one of the most common such conditions is called multiple sclerosis or MS. And I am an associate professor of neurology at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, and um, care for patients and have an active clinic there. I'm also a teacher. I teach medical students and doctors in training called residents and, and fellows and I also conduct um, research, including um, clinical trials and clinical research to understand um, these conditions better and to develop new treatments. And you're also, just as a side note, you're a, you're a father and a, and a husband, a busy man. I am. Uh, I'm very lucky. Now, when I hear what you do and we talk, the patients that you care for sound so complicated and so complex. Do you, do you like what you do? Well, I, I love what I do, and um, I, I, I think it's a real privilege um, to be able to work with such patients and, and to help people first figure out what's causing their neurologic condition and to figure out the best ways um, to treat it and also to restore function. And, and one of the joys is getting to work with patients, sometimes for um, years or even um, now decades as I get older, too. You're such a special doctor. I... I want to ask you, people talk about autoimmune disease, and I think most of the public probably doesn't really understand what that means exactly. Can you give a broad description of what an autoimmune disease is? An autoimmune condition 
is when our body's immune system gets misdirected against ourselves. And so we all have immune systems, and, and the, these are um, defense mechanisms against you know, infection and against other harms to our body. And usually our immune systems work just fine and are one of the um, key um, promoters of health. It, 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 it keeps us safe and alive. But sometimes our immune systems essentially gets misdirected to a- attack um, our own bodies, what we call antigens or, or um, signatures of, of um, proteins in our body that, that the immune system might think is not part of ourselves, but is actually part of ourselves. And that ends up causing inflammation and attack against certain parts of our body. So if the immune system gets misdirected to attack our kidneys, that can cause a kidney autoimmune condition. If it gets misdirected to attack something in our lungs, it can cause an autoimmune lung condition. And in my specialty, when the immune system gets misdirected to attack the brain or the spinal cord or nerves, it can cause an autoimmune neurologic condition. So what you're saying is what the body typically relies on to fight a cold or a a normal infection that we have our immune system, we can't use that defense system because it's actually turning on itself. Is that right? It it turns on itself um, and we still can use the immune system to to fight other infections. But in this case, it's sort of an overactive or a misdirected immune response that's very selective usually and and attacks um, certain parts of our body. And that pattern defines the specific autoimmune disease. So interesting. I imagine that must make it really difficult to treat these conditions much harder than treating strep throat with antibiotics, let's say. Can be at at, at times, but, but we're also really lucky to live in the 21st century now where we really have um, many good treatments dampen down this immune response. And the goal with autoimmune treatment, once you have a diagnosis, is to prevent harm to that organ system or to that part of our body and to do it in a way that calms down or dampens down that immune response but still keeps enough of our immune system, the rest of our immune system, intact enough to fight infection. And that's a real balance and a push and pull. And there's a lot of individualization of of treatment to get that right. A lot of your practice, you take care of patients with multiple sclerosis. I know many people, and you've told me this before, everybody knows someone who has MS. It's that it's commonly uncommon. How common is it exactly? MS is is, is actually more common than we used to think. And and, uh, the latest numbers which are we think are really um, due to just doing a better job measuring. About almost a little under a million people in the United States um, have MS and several million people worldwide. And if okay. we think that there's a little more than 350 million people in the United States, for example, that that's um, about one in every 350 um, people um, ha- is estimated or, um, to have MS. So that's actually not a small number, a million people. It's not, and it's actually pretty sort of remarkably common. And sometimes it may um, be evident um, to an outside observer uh, that someone has MS, but many people with MS may not necessarily show or exhibit symptoms that are visible to others. And, And these are often called silent 
symptoms. And, and so people may have MS and have symptoms, but you may not know it as a casual observer. What are the typical symptoms of MS? So MS is an autoimmune condition where the body's immune response gets misdirected against the central nervous system. And that means the brain, the spinal cord, and the optic nerve, the, er the nerve um, that, that um, is connected and, and um, um, helps with vision. It's connected to the eye. Um, the, the, so depending on where in the nervous system someone with MS has the immune response, that will determine the symptoms. So some people um, get a condition called optic neuritis where there can be um, vision loss from attack to the optic nerve. There can be spine-related symptoms. This can be numbness, weakness, bowel and bladder dysfunction. Um, there can be um, involvement in parts of the brain and spine as well um, that, that affect coordination and walking and um, arm movement and speech, um, thinking as well. Fatigue is also particularly common in people with MS. And um, people can also um, have other symptoms like nerve-based pain, what's called neuropathic pain. Um, and and um, there are many other symptoms, um, but each person with MS um, has their own experience by where in the nervous system the immune system targets. Interesting. And you were mentioning before that what's exciting about working in this field is that now there are treatments in the 21st century. Can you describe what some of those treatments are? Just for reference, uh, the, the first licensed therapy in the United States was in the early 1990s. And so wow. while that's now many years ago, it's not that long ago. And there are many people living with MS who started living with the condition before licensed therapies, before proven therapies were discovered. That's and fascinating. so it's really modern history. There's now a, a wide range and a large um, number, um, more than 20 plus individual products, but, but really broken into d different classes that all target the immune response. And these are what's called disease-modifying treatments. They affect the course of MS in a meaningful way that reduces disability, that reduces nervous system injury. And these treatments target different aspects of, of the immune response, including B cells and T cell responses, and lower or modulate or suppress the immune response in a way that favorably treats MS and ho hopefully still keeps that balance to fight infection. Although the more that you suppress the immune system, there can be an increase in infections. And the goal is to strike that right balance. How exciting though that you're working in the field now with so many new medication discoveries. It's really exciting and, and, and um, it, it's, um, I think, particularly exciting um, for, for the patients that, that we care for as well. And in, in the field of MS, the goal now is, is to make the diagnosis early and accurately and then to offer definitive treatment to try to shut the disease process down as much as possible early on 
with the goal of trying to prevent or delay longer-term um, disability or accumulation of injury to the nervous system. And in, in, increasingly, the, the data look more and more favorable, and, and um, it, it, it's um, really um, many, many um, reasons for, for hope and optimism um, in the field. And, and um, one of the big goals now is to also be able to target other aspects of the condition. We talked a, um, about in, immunology and about inflammation, but MS is defined by an immune attack against the nervous system that also leads to nerve injury and injury to the glial cells, the supporting cells of the nervous system, including myelin, and then also a neurodegenerative process, meaning there can be a slow worsening and injury and loss of nerves and axons over years and decades. And that accounts for an important and substantial component of long-term disability in MS. And much research now is focused on trying to target the progressive aspect, the neurodegenerative aspect of MS. And there's also increasing focus on repair mechanisms, including remyelination, the ways that we can get our own bodies to help repair the central nervous system. And so a, um, my hope is, is that um, in the near future, we'll be able to offer combination type therapies where it'll be, here's the immune treatment, here's the neuroprotective treatment or the anti-neurodegenerative treatment, here's the repair treatment and strategy, and then here are medicines to help with symptoms and, and treatment approaches to help with symptoms. And that would be the sort of holistic vision for care going forward. That's amazing. So if I'm understanding you correctly, MS, before there were medication and treatment options, the disease would progress and there would be no turning back, so to speak. Once there was damage to the nervous system, that was it. It would continue to progress. But now we have options to not only slow down the progression, but we also have ways to treat the damage of the nervous system that has been done. That's amazing. Um, but one way to think about this, is d different ways MS um, can, can affect the body, in, including what are called relapses or attacks. And that's the most common form of MS is what's called relapsing remitting MS. And, and that's characterized by an acute inflammatory response to a part of the nervous system. And someone may get a new neurologic symptom, such as new numbness or new weakness that comes on over a few days to a few weeks, and then can last for weeks to a few months, and usually gets better, at least in part, over time. And the correlate of that on MRI, on brain imaging, is a white matter lesion. And our treatments are particularly effective at stopping that aspect of disease. And that, that's been one of the biggest breakthroughs in the last couple of decades. There's wow. also the progressive aspect of MS where there's slow worsening and accumulation of disability over years. And the correlate of that on imaging and on pathology is nerve loss over time and atrophy. And the latest science says that starting immune treatment as earlier on as, as possible within the first few years or several years of, of um, disease onset is the 
can lead to a longer term reduction in that progressive process or a delay in that. And, and that's really, really meaningful. Um, what we still need are better treatments to help slow down that progression. Some of our strongest immune therapies might do th that in part, but we need, and, and I really believe that, that we can do better. We just need to discover how to do that. So I know you described, um, I know earlier you're talking about how autoimmune disease, the, the immune system attacks itself or targets its own body. Are there any, for people listening, is there anything that can be done to prevent an autoimmune disease like multiple sclerosis? It's such an important question. Um, speaking of autoimmune disease generally, you know, the latest models conceptualize it as a combination of a genetic predisposition to autoimmunity in combination with certain environmental factors that influence the immune system and then likely a component of chance that leads to different changes in the immune system causing autoimmunity. And in the case of MS, there's now been decades of really top-notch genetic work trying to understand, is there a gene or what are the genes that cause MS? And the latest studies show that, that MS, like most autoimmune conditions, are what are called complex genetic conditions. There's not one gene that causes the condition. There's a combination of small influences from dozens, if not a couple hundred genes, that tip the balance towards autoimmunity. But the vast majority of people who have those um, mutations or, or patterns in their gene will not ever get autoimmune disease. So some, there's some other trigger. And one example of this is if you look at identical twins, what are called mono, in the field, monozygotic twins. So these are twins who share, have the same DNA. Their genes are identical. That, that's the definition of, of, of a monozygotic uh, twin. And if one twin, has MS, there's about a 30% lifetime chance that the other twin will go on to get MS. Another way of framing that is that there's a 70% chance they won't. Wow. And, and that you know, highlights how much environment and things that happen to our bodies and influence our genes and our immune systems drive autoimmune conditions. So genes are really one important but small, relatively, relatively small piece of the puzzle. And so the big question has been, what are these environmental factors? And, and um, th there have been several clues, several suggestions over um, the years for, for what might contribute in MS. And, and some of these are ones that we hear about for other conditions, for example, smoking, increases the risk of, of um, getting a diagnosis of MS. It, smoking can also um, make MS worse in someone that already has the diagnosis. 
There's also some emerging data, for example, that obesity and metabolic syndrome can increase the risk um, of MS specifically, um, as with some other autoimmune conditions. But there have also been some very curious and, and um, intriguing other environmental clues. For example, it's been known for decades now that MS tends to be more common in geographies, in people that live in geographies farther from the equator. There's also evidence that MS tends to be more common in areas that get less sun, less UV exposure. And then there's a line of evidence that suggests that people who have a low vitamin D status, vitamin D is a vitamin that we primarily get in our bodies through sunlight, interacting with our skin, as opposed to a very small amount through our diet, um, through supplementation. Um, and low vitamin D, low vitamin D um, is also increased, um, associated with an increased risk of getting MS. So there's one line of evidence that that contributes. But perhaps the most exciting breakthrough, certainly in the last few years, was uh, that um, additional data to support the idea that Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, um, is a major contributor um, to MS. And th- th- this was front page news, um, both in the medical journals as well as um, major newspapers um, in, in 2022 when this came out. And so this is very hot off the press. And, and um, it had been suggested for years um, but but the, the real proof came with a beautiful study that, that was um, conducted by a, a group at um, Harvard and um, published the, the paper in a major scientific journal using a data set of the U.S. military. And there's um, 10 million blood samples um, in stored by the U.S. military. And with the appropriate ethical approvals and and, um, pathways to do um, um, ethical research, um, the investigators identified people that gave blood samples when they joined the U.S. military and did not have MS, or at least did not have known MS, and then identified who went on to get a diagnosis of MS and then accessed those blood samples and had a comparison group trying to match for key things they could measure, such as sex at birth, smoking history, age, um, etc. And what they found was that if someone did not have an exposure to Epstein-Barr virus infection when they joined the military at 18 and then got or after 18, and then got the infection, getting Epstein-Barr virus was associated with about 35 times the risk of getting MS. And that's the kind of risk in a well-done study that is at the level of smoking is associated or causes lung cancer, at least some lung cancers. I mean, it was overwhelmingly positive data. And, And... Um, some of the um, 
and, and then there's additional evidence that people with MS have immune responses against the Epstein-Barr virus as well. Um, but there's also evidence that it's not an not likely to be an active infection. We really don't see um, active Epstein-Barr virus infection when we do the most detailed um, infectious-based studies. And so the model is that getting Epstein-Barr virus at a certain age can affect the immune system and trigger the immune system. And in people who are genetically susceptible in an autoimmune way that tips the balance towards getting MS, and then likely with a contribution of other environmental risk factors, there's that chance component that leads to getting MS. That is now, so interesting to me. It, it's fascinating. And, and, you know, some of the caveats and things that we need more research to understand are um, most people get Epstein-Barr virus infection in childhood. I mean, I imagine, you know, you, you see this all the time in, in a routine pediatric practice. So not getting Epstein-Barr virus in childhood and then getting it in adulthood is less common. And, and many people who um, get MS can um, have some symptoms in retrospect in their teenage years. And so one of the, or, or, and there are some people with MS who even start having symptoms um, in childhood. And so one of the questions that we really need a better understanding of it is what are the ages and what aspects of, of the Epstein-Barr virus infection really matter? And does, will this still hold up um, if people get Epstein-Barr virus infection in their younger teenage years or in um, you know, preteen years, for example, and, and um, this study did not directly answer that. Um, but, but it leads to a lot of exciting theories about how we might even prevent MS. You know, for example, if we had an effective vaccine against Epstein-Barr virus infection, and one that could be given safely and at the right time point um, and not cause or trigger um, autoimmune and demyelinating disease. If that can be done, right, there, there's um, a, a strong chance that we might really reduce the risk of, of, of MS and, and make it much rarer. And that'd be amazing. Amazing. And I'm just thinking, as a pediatrician, just for, just for people listening, Epstein-Barr virus or EBV is a very common virus in childhood. With little kids, it looks like a cold. And it's the same virus that causes what's commonly known of as mono or mononucleosis in teenagers, that illness where they get very, very tired or the kissing disease, some people call it. Um, and so that is fascinating. If somehow we could come up with a way to prevent it in early childhood, that that might decrease the chances of ever getting, of ever getting uh, multiple sclerosis. That's so interesting. Absolutely. And, and, and I think it's important to, to emphasize that the vast majority of people um, get Epstein-Barr virus um, in their life. And the vast majority of people who get EBV infection will not get MS. And so what we need to understand is, is why um, when MS happens, it, it, it does. But, but it, it really does seem to be um, a, a very powerful um, part of the causal pathway um, to what causes MS. And, and that's a really important breakthrough. It's interesting to think of what, what progress uh, in the realm of multiple sclerosis you might see in your career? Um, I've already seen um, so much progress, and, and, I, and I really hope to see much more. I mean, I, I think um, both on the preventive side, but also potentially on the treatment side, 
um, th this really opens up a, a lot of new hypotheses. And, and um, for example, there are clinical trials now starting to ask the question of if you can treat the immune response to EBV, Epstein-Barr virus-based proteins, would that help people with MS? Or if, if there are other clues from this hypothesis that lead to a better understanding of, of the chronic immune response of, of MS, um, that, that could lead to a, a new treatment avenue. So um, I, mean, I, th I think this is the real thing in terms of um, important breakthroughs. Um, and Dr. Gelfin, it, as, I... as most things in science, right, one question leads to another, and, and that's part of the um, things that make, make this um, so exciting. By the way, thank you so much for uh, providing hot off the press news on the Ask Dr. Jessica podcast. Anytime. It's, good. <laughs> it, it, it's always good to, to have such updates in our fields. Absolutely. Um, one quick question. A lot of people talk about gut health and the way that we might help the gut in terms of preventing or treating autoimmune disease. Have you read anything about protecting the gut in terms of multiple sclerosis? Like, do you ever recommend probiotics? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, th this area of research falls under what's called the microbiome. We all have bacteria and other microorganisms in our gut. And if we just look at bacteria, um, it, it, it's about one to 3% of our um, body mass is, is, is gut bacteria. I mean, just think about that for a minute. And, and there's millions and millions of genes that bacteria have um, and there's a lot of um, contribution of our gut bacteria to our gut immune system, to our systemic, our blood-based immune system, and that then influences the immune system in our nervous system. And there's really important science that suggests that the gut microbiome, the bacterial composition of people with MS is different from people who um, don't have a diagnosis of MS, um, including people who live in the same house um, and have the same environmental exposures but don't have MS. And, and that's led to questions about whether we can figure out what are the favorable microbiomes to be pro-MS inflammatory versus less or anti-inflammatory. And th there's really um, exciting and ongoing research trying to nail this down to the specific bacterial patterns and compositions that influence our immune system and to trace this all the way with that pathway from the gut through the different arms of the immune response all the way to the brain. The, the challenge is that, that we don't yet know what the proper treatment microbiome composition is. That needs to be proven in research and properly controlled and conducted clinical trials. And that's just starting. It, it, it's a really early area of research. Probiotics are just a very tiny slice of this very large bacterial spectrum and um, don't really make a big difference in changing the microbiome composition, at least from an inflammatory standpoint. So while there may be a role for other um, aspects of, of gut health um, we, we're likely need more than just what a probiotic can do to, to change or influence the gut microbiome as a future treatment for MS, at least in my opinion. What I'm so enjoying about talking with you is you, you paint such a picture of hope and optimism 
that there's so much on the horizon for, for your patients. It's, it's very exciting, and I'm so glad that you're their physician. Well, thank you. Do you have any final words of wisdom or anything you'd like to say to any families that are listening? Um, just I do share that that hope and, and that optimism, um, and I, I think this this is a really exciting time um, in medicine where we're really leveraging the advances of, of modern science um, with the goal of um, developing evidence based therapies. And, and I, I really am hopeful that that care for people with MS and other neuroinflammatory conditions. I, I truly believe that, that um, things will continue to get better and better as we go forward. Uh, Dr. Jeff Gelfand, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You have no idea how much it means to me, and I'm so lucky to know you, and I'm so grateful that there are patients out there that see you, that you, that you treat, and just to know that there are doctors out there like you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. Also, if you could take a moment and leave a five-star review wherever it is you listen to podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it. It really makes a difference to help this podcast grow. You can also follow me on Instagram at AskDrJessica. See you next Monday.